1: I'm Leo Letz, Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. Hey, We're right. hey, get out of here. This is my job. Get out of here. here. Amateurs. Hey, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. We're going to do the Brooklyn Seminar Q&A uh, with Austin and myself. Part two. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoy. Question is cold stuff, no, question is cryotherapy, beach, pool, what else?
0: Swimming in cold water. Oh, yeah. Do they have any unique health benefits? Brockie. So I use cryotherapy very often to treat various dermatologic conditions like actinic keratosis. (laughs) All right. Talk about freezing things off people's skin that can turn into cancer. When it comes to training and recovery modalities, I do not recommend cryotherapy unless the person is willing to spend money on something that makes them feel good, in which case they're going to do what they want anyway. Yeah. But I don't think that it provides any unique benefits, makes you recover faster, perform better in some other unrelated thing right? Unless you were an open water swimmer, in which case, yeah, you should probably go swim out in the open water. Yeah. But if you are uh, competing in powerlifting or CrossFit or something not involving cold environments, then I don't think that you are going to get substantial recovery benefits by doing those things. And to the extent that it makes you feel good and you are willing to pay that money, that's cool. Although, remember our discussion during the pain lecture, about all the various treatment things that we can do to patients that have non-specific effects, i.e. placebo benefits, right? Things that work outside of some specific disease-targeted or condition-targeted mechanism, uh, and the risk for dependency on those, right? So yeah, you are the... so used to getting cryo once a week before your hard week of training, and then, uh, you know, it comes to, you know, meat week, and you're ready to do that, and you go, and your cryo it's store closed. <laughs> what do you do? You freak out, and you drive to another city in your state to go fry and find the next cryo chamber, because otherwise your performance is going to be down. Well, it probably wasn't going to be down until you conditioned yourself to believe you needed that to perform. Yeah. Right? So that's the, that's about most of the argument. Yeah. So I only use cold stuff to freeze... Skin Stuff things off. It's about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's, I haven't seen any good like uh, systematic reviews or meta-analysis studies, studies of studies that suggest that cryotherapy or cold like ice baths or anything like that help from a recovery performance standpoint outside of the context where you had uh, multiple events occurring in a given day and your core temperature is elevated above normal, in which case getting to an ice bath or cold immersive therapy that lowers your core body temperature quickly tends to uh, reduce your ratings of fatigue on the second effort. Meaning like if you were going to the CrossFit Games and it's super hot after event one, you dunked yourself in some cold water and then went for event two, that might be better than not. But it's not improving your recovery rate unless it's associated with other behaviors that you know are beneficial or the placebo effect. So only thing I've seen on that. Did we talk about a hyperbaric chamber last time? About blowing up. You have know people doing that? People are getting a hyperbaric oxygen chamber? Excess oxygen. You know the risk what's the, the risk factor of that? Well, yeah, it could explode though.
0: Like I mean, if it's a legit clinical environment, yeah, you it's don't. unlikely to happen because we use it to treat real things. Yeah. Well,
1: I'm just saying though. Like, <laughs> hey man, uh, we're gonna go do hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But then you wait you don't wake up, you're dead. It explode. <laughs> <laughs> Risk, yep. risk, reward. Sure. <laughs> uh, so the question is: hyping yourself up for a set.
0: What is the effect? What do you recommend? Uh, you want? I, I can go first. Yeah. So, so I talked about this in the uh, stress uh, lecture, as it pertains to the psychological skills that you can employ to modify the stress response and things like that. I have this too. All right. Uh, so, um, now you just distracting me good my um, turn all right so <laughs> well so if
1: if you are using a high amounts of psychological arousal on a regular basis okay then i think you are adding ex- excess central fatigue to each session now that may be useful at certain times if you if it's a the training session the performance in that particular training session is of high importance right you got to get up for that because you're one week out from a meet and you're like, look, if I don't pull 675 today for that single, I don't know if I can open for it. Well, do it, man. But if it is a regular part of every set, every training you know, sort of thing that you do, then not only does it lose its effectiveness, but also it may be kick, you know, affecting how much fatigue you're generating from each training session. And I just wouldn't do that. it's Go about your business. You know? So you can get hyped up for the important sessions, just like if you want to put your singlet on Do your whole, you know, make it an emotionally stressful session. You can do that for a high stress, high priority session. You can do that. But I wouldn't use it every single training session. Otherwise, it loses its effect. Just like ammonia, right? Imagine if every set, (laughs) every (laughs) session, you were just. (sighs) Well, it would stop. It would lose its. Within the
0: first session, probably stop.
1: (laughs) Well, it reminds me of. (laughs) From Brute. From. (laughs) This guy, this guy, literally, every set, it doesn't matter. (sighs) And then it'd be in his shorts. Just, you won't want one? And it, it would be like a, a, a graveyard of ammonia caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like, no, I just, I
0: just like just it. Just turn green. <laughs> I just like it. Nickelback. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are people who suggest that you train low arousal, don't get hyped up, things like that. I think that's primarily a personal preference Uh, on their part that was the other thing that's just the way they that's just the way they're wired up they like to train that way um i think that both of us probably when we when we are approaching something that matters more then we might tend to use that and then the rest of the time not so much i tend to use that a little more when i'm when i'm hitting my like if i'm hitting a top single in training then yeah i'll not go like out of my mind use ammonia but i'll definitely put on like a song that i like and kind of get myself going a little more and then for all my back off stuff just kind of Routine, just get it done, and I don't really use that for that. So definitely potential for disproportionate amount of fatigue. The more you do that, uh, and so you have to account for that in your programming. Yeah. You, Unproductive. I'm sure. Well, well, the
1: fatigue would be an excess of the training stimulus. Yes. That that being said, the psychological benefit of hitting a number that you needed to hit prior to yeah. an important event to you may be worth that, yeah. right? Because the, then at that point, then the performance on that given day. Is more important than the training effect, mm-hmm. so it depends. And if you're a person who is wired up like that and you like that, that's your jam. Then coaching is, uh, coaching and program design is it goes around that personality type. Versus somebody who's like, yeah, I'm just happy to be here, man. That's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. same. You gotta start listening to country music but when you train. You gotta start listening to country. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah, country, country. Because it'll, yeah, it just makes you sad enough that you're just like, you know what, I don't even care.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: My dog 10 years ago is dead. <laughs> well, so one of the things I do with new client screenings, I'll send them a stop bang questionnaire, which is... S-T-O-P dash B-A-N-G. Yeah, like just, it sounds. Just a questionnaire. You can use that or Epworth's Sleeping to scale, but I use a stop bang questionnaire just to basically... T- Determine if someone is at low, medium, or high risk of sleep apnea. If they're at high risk, I an auto refer to their doctor to discuss uh, a sleep study. I mean, I had, I have sleep apnea. Hey, me too. Yeah. So is snoring.
0: Just your classic
1: that's one sign. It's part of it. If you're not tired during the day, right, and you're not using a bunch of stimulants to keep yourself awake, but you're not taught, you don't wake up tired every day, then just snoring in and of itself is not sensitive enough to be predictive. That's why there are other items on the test. So for instance, if you're a male, if your neck is greater than 16 and a half inches, if you're fatigued most days, do you snore? You know was it age over fifty or something? Fifty, like that? 50 or fifty-five, if your BMI is above a certain number, all these other sorts of questions. And so my experience with it was, and this is like almost classic case study, uh, they were like, you know, if, if you have somebody who it's fatigued all the time. The signs, signs, symptoms mimic depression. You know, I thought I was depressed. It was my third year of medical school. I was very sad. And I was tired. Just couldn't. I don't know, man. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's medical school. Uh, and then my neurology attending was like, "You look tired." I'm like, "No, it's just my face." And he goes, "No," <laughs> he goes, and so he actually was just doing this inventory. He's like, "Do you snore? You know, do you have a bed?" And if I said no, he would have asked me. You know, do you have a bed, a bed partner who could tell you if you snore? Yeah. Right. And what happened was this girl, she wasn't in my bed. She was in my room for some other reason. <laughs> she, reco- she says, hey, dude, you snore. And I said, no, I don't. Somebody else would have told me. And she says, no, you do. And she recorded me on video. And I like die, like literally choking. And so anyway, I was like, yeah, actually, I do. I snore. Uh, and I'm t- really tired. He's like, ah, I'm just going to send you with a home sleep study. Right? And so I had this thing, you strap it to your, your chest because it tells you how much, how much you're breathing and, and you have a, a wire that tells you your saturation. So I stopped breathing or had low oxygen 41 times an hour. Well, the normal cutoff is five. <laughs> so I, you know, most of the time this happens in people who are overweight you know, or who have, uh, for other reasons if they have a brain-derived process that doesn't tell them to breathe regularly. But mine, I just said I had too much track too much trap. It made me feel better about myself so you're telling me you didn't just get your test checked no i didn't no well that was the thing though but i just thought i was sad you know and i was depressed or that maybe i had low testosterone or whatever.
0: somebody would have definitely put him on testosterone for that yeah guaranteed
1: yeah 100 so uh that was my experience with it i got a cpap it was cool because you get to make bane jokes after that you know like no one cared about me till i put on the mask like you get to do that when you have a mask it's great so, ten out of ten would recommend. Um, I think that that if you're coaching people, you know their sleep uh, uh, patterns and sleep history is part of an important sort of inventory that you're taking. Now, because you can't do anything about sleep apnea, you may you could give them a stop bang questionnaire, and if it comes back high, you say, "Hey, you should see your doctor." Right? It is important to you as their trainer to be like, "Hey, you're sleeping well. You don't have any untreated, you know." untreated medical conditions, that's important to you. So you could reasonably do that. That's what I would recommend. Yeah. Question is, as clinicians, do you have any other professional goals to get the training world and the medical world to work more cohesively? Uh, so why, my personal goal, so I, I, I decided that I needed to quantify this, right? Because if you don't have a quantifiable goal, you're just you know, chasing something that you, you don't even, can't, it's not well described so right now the existing data, uh, data we we see suggests that a little under half of Americans meet their aerobic minimum requirements for a given week and uh, less than half of them the people who are meeting their aerobic goals are meeting their anaerobic training goals for the week meaning that 25% of the population is meeting their resistance training minimums which I think is an overestimate but let's just say it's that well I'd like to double that That's goal number one. Goal number two is to double the amount of clinicians who actually know what those guidelines are. So right now, 10% of primary care physicians even know what the current guidelines are, which is that you should be resistance training twice per week. You should be engaging in high intensity interval training two to three times a week or moderate intensity uh, cardio four times per week. So 10% of all primary care docs know that. Well, I'd like to make that 20%, all right? And goal number three is less well-defined. Goal number three actually has to do with the fitness industry in particular, because they're like, well, doctors are dumb. They don't know anything about training. And so anything that they say in relation to training or nutrition, I'm going to ignore. That makes me sad. I don't want them to say that anymore (laughs) because I think that's to their detriment. While it may not be wrong on many things that were told to them, I think that that keeps them from obtaining their scheduled preventative medicine sort of uh, things that we know that would improve their health uh, long term, such as getting regularly checked for certain disease states, making sure they're up to date on their vaccines, making sure they've had their age appropriate lab work. And so but if you just say, well, doctors are dumb, they don't know anything, then you don't go see the doctor and then you don't get that age appropriate screening. And then things, you know, fester over time. And then you're like, well, I haven't seen a doctor in 15 years. Here I am. Also, this thing has been hurting for the last 10 years and you're like, oh yeah, we should do an ultrasound on that. Oh wow, you've had this thing that we could have cured had we caught it earlier, should have been here, you know? Well, so I understand, what I'm getting at is I understand why they're saying what they're saying, but I think if we can be the faces of this bridge, right? And sort of make medicine more accessible to them, they say, hey, you know what? Maybe all doctors aren't aren't jerks. Maybe, uh, you know, they have some important (laughs) stuff for us. Right. And then that would be very useful from the training to, to, to bring the training community kind of into this without with a little less uh, losing a, a barrier there. I think
0: that would be useful. Those are my three goals. I don't know if those are the same as yours. Yeah, I think um, probably I, I mean, I generally agree with those and I'm working in a similar direction. Uh, we had we had dinner, with some friends and, and colleagues slash former colleagues uh, <laughs> last night, and uh, one of them is finishing up PT school and uh and a year ago or so when i wrote the initial aches and pains article kind of putting this idea the pain science stuff that i taught all you guys out into the lifting world where it had not been particularly prevalent um read that article and it transformed kind of his mindset and how he was going about pt school and he said that he has since Kind of sucked up as much of those resources as he can and he's talked to his professors and his professors are changing the way that they're thinking and the way they're teaching things at his pt school and he wants to go out and spread this stuff and so i see these sorts of ripple effects happening in various contexts right so i get a lot of satisfaction out of that and i feel like this kind of chain reaction that we are hoping to set off across the country world internet whatever has the potential to be pretty productive And so I get pretty excited when we have healthcare professionals in our audience here. Um, We've had numerous at some of our other seminars, which has been pretty cool to see. And I think that's just going to increase with time, with our scholarship and all this other stuff we're trying to do to get people here. And yeah, I mean, basically, we can only do so much. And that's why we have both kind of described the sentiment of like, we would like your help. Uh, Because you are now, you all here, regardless of degree of professional training, are substantially more educated on a lot of this stuff than a lot of other most other people who are walking around out there and so um, I think the potential for that sort of a chain reaction you know just sending somebody a link hey check this out this is what I learned about or check this video out or check this article out and that has the potential to uh, kind of uh, ripple outwards and have pretty substantial effects I mean we feel the effects of that and when people send us messages on a daily basis saying hey I got benefit from this thing that you did. I read this article. I did this for my back tweak and it feels awesome. And it's like, those are like case by case, right? Those are like a handful of people that accumulate over time. But I think we can reach more people by getting more people helping to kind of, you know, spread this stuff outward more. We're trying to do that both in the lay public community, right? All of you all that are here. And then also in the healthcare community with, you know, say our article, probably going to try to Get uh, more involved in that community. I'm obviously re- retaining uh, significant ties to that from a professional standpoint, practicing in that setting and influencing colleagues and stuff like that, getting them to understand hey, like muscle mass matters. Uh, you know, yeah. these sick patients that are frail, we can do something about it. Uh, Read, check out this paper, you know. So making them realize the importance of this stuff and that we can. We, we, th- the, the thing that frustrates me the most is when I talk to a colleague about this stuff, regardless of what I mean by this stuff, any of the things we talked about this weekend, and the response I get from the colleague is, yeah, but there's no data on that. That is like, kills me. (laughs) After having read, both of us, each read several hundred papers, three, four, five hundred papers to prepare all the stuff we did for the seminar, to hear somebody say, yeah, there's no evidence on that. Just flippantly. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> that frustrates. So, I want that. I want to make people more aware that this stuff matters and there's evidence to support it, and likely far more than you think. Uh, so, we should be doing this stuff more if we want to make a bigger impact, right? So, yeah.
1: All right. So, the question is Is there a direct benefit to increasing lean body mass, also skinny, bo- skinny fat? What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What's the deal? What's the deal with being skinny fat? Are you skinny or (laughs) are you fat? Pick one. I mean, mean, really. (laughs) How self-centered can one be? Pick a habitus. All right. uh, So um, if somebody is skinny fat, I think, well, first you have to describe that, right? So if they don't have a waist that is an excess of what we know to be like that sort of cutoff point. So 40 inches for a male, 37 inches for a female. Uh, mm. It would be difficult in and of itself to be like, well, you're skinny fat. Now, they may, in fact, be carrying a, a lot, uh, some body fat, uh, excess body fat. However, the critical amount has not amassed it, has not, it, it. They don't have it yet. They don't have it yet. They've not reached critical mass. Right. Literally. Literally. Yes. Literally. That being said if you have a low amount of muscle mass now the only things that i've seen on this the only thing that i've seen on this uh one study was on inpatient uh, people being admitted to the hospital and they had a low serum creatinine now creatinine is a uh a, uh, a, a end product of amino acid metabolism that we use as a proxy for both kidney function and then amount of lean body mass that you're actually carrying so Do we expect like the normal man walking around without kidney disease to have a serum creatinine of about one, right? And if uh, he came in there to my office and he was 1.2, I wouldn't bat an eye because I'm like, look, man, he's carrying a bunch of lean body mass. Of course, it's 1.2. But if he was five, I'd be like, oh crap, his kidneys aren't doing the job of clearing that from the system, it's building up. So there's uh, evidence that if you go and get admitted to the hospital with a serum creatinine of 0.4 or less, that your mortality rate in the hospital goes way up. The idea being you're not carrying enough lean body mass, even though your kidneys are working just fine. All right, so that's one study. The others, other studies are uh, proxies. Basically, they use uh, uh, how much strength or muscular power do you possess based on a certain test. It could be their hand grip test, it could be a timed up and go, it could be how far you can walk in a certain amount of time. Uh, and basically, the worse you perform on those tests there are direct correlations Mm -hmm. to mortality rate. So there's a danger in not having enough muscle mass to be able to complete those tests very, very well. So if you're asking me, is there a danger in not having a lot of muscle mass or not having enough muscle mass to be uh, highly functioning? Yeah, I think that people will only realize those when it's too late though, when they've become so training. Because the people who are carrying low amounts of lean body mass at baseline are the folks on that training-resistant end of the scale anyway. Because you think about somebody who's super sensitive to training would either have accidentally picked up a barbell once and gotten way stronger and be like, this is sweet, I'm going to be into barbells. Or, given their normal, whatever their normal activities are, would have likely you know, gained a significant amount of muscle mass or at least preserved a significant amount of muscle mass throughout their life. So the people who have really low amounts of lean body mass are probably on the training-resistant end of the scale. And if they get into old age, without having developed this physical 401k of lean body mass. That's a problem. Because what are you gonna do then? So I actually got a really interesting email. This guy, his dad was admitted to the ICU because he had a pneumonia and ultimately required intubation and then they extubated him because he, he was breathing on his own, he was getting better. But this, he lost a bunch of weight in the hospital and he was older, he was frail. He's like, uh, would any doctor like, prescribe him anabolic steroids? to like gain some muscle mass to return to function would that be an asinine you know recommendation both of us were like i mean no not really maybe that would be helpful for his like quality of life and like return to, you know independent living but no doctor's going to do it stigma lack of evidence just on overall efficacy you know stuff like that so Anyway, to answer your question more directly, I think there is reasonable amount of evidence suggesting that low amounts of lean body mass are associated with increased prog- uh, like mortality rate long-term, and that if you are young enough to hear this, to watch this on YouTube, then you have the opportunity to take
0: that into your own hands and correct that. Yeah, you can look at, there's lots of data on conditions that are now described as sarcopenic obesity. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So meaning you have low muscle mass and you're still obese, basically the fancy medical term for skinny fat. There's osteosarcopenic obesity where you have low amounts of muscle mass, your osteopenic osteoporotic, low bone mass, and you're still obese. That's probably even worse for mortality. Um, and then there's all the evidence on strength and muscle mass correlations with mortality, very large data sets on that stuff. Um, I think that BMG study was like two and a half million. Lots of people. Most of those are done with, uh, you know, like hand grip, uh, hand grip measurements and dynamometers and stuff like that, which are problems. fine for you know large level screening for this stuff. Um, and I routinely, when I have an older patient that I'm seeing in, in clinic, I'll, I'll do a, something like a timed up and go. Basically, you have them try to stand up out of the chair, walk a certain distance, walk back and sit back down, and you time how long it takes them to do that. Squat, uh, basically. My, even my simpler screening, if I wanted to get it done real, real fast, even though this is technically not validated, I just ask them to get up out of the chair without using their arms. And if they can get up and do this, then I feel better than if they do this, and they can't even get up if that's a straight very bad sign they can't if they can't get out of the chair without using their arms or if they even worse can't get out of the chair with with using their arms and they need help to do that that's even worse right but i see all this stuff so there is plenty of evidence on this definitely increases mortality people should train Yep. yeah and and yeah i was gonna quote i was gonna quote the same creatinine study i knew you were gonna do that but i see that a lot too like frail 85 year old female has had rheumatoid arthritis or you know some condition most of her life chronic inflammatory thing condition that produces more anabolic resistance you lose muscle mass and her creatinine is like 0.1 or like i've seen one i saw one patient earlier this year i think i told you about him
1: yeah you sent me the well, yeah no he didn't he didn't send me anything
0: uh, edit that out i told you that the creatinine level is undetectable it's like i've never seen that before they had no detectable <laughs> byproduct of muscle mass in their body they had a particular genetic syndrome that, like, predisposed them to having low amounts of muscle mass and just undetectable creatinine. Never seen that before. That's not very good. Was she running LP? Yeah, she was not running LP, uh. nor was she capable of running LP. I see. Yes. So the question is, how do we manage training for someone with a particular autoimmune disease whose strength and function vary day to day? Are you comfortable saying the specific autoimmune condition? I, psoriatic arthritis. Psoriatic arthritis. Okay. Uh, so psoriatic arthritis is a condition that just produces an inflammatory arthritis in various areas of the body, often associated with, our, with psoriasis, though they don't have to have psoriasis to have psoriatic arthritis. There are numerous medicines to treat it that generally do a fairly good job. So from my standpoint, if I was talking to somebody who had this and I was not their doctor, the first thing I'd want to know is like what their treatment is, because we have fairly good treatments for it. If they were on the medicines that I would expect someone with psoriatic arthritis to be on, they're on consistent dosing, they, you know, they're all checked out. If they were still having evidence of inflammatory arthritis, right, synovitis, things like that, I would be like, hey, we need to talk to your rheumatologist to get your condition under better control. Because the symptoms of the active symptoms of the inflammatory condition means that they're not being treated adequately. You may need to escalate. Need to right. up, up the, the dose. dose. Right? Oh, that's a meme. So that's what you need to do Somebody's to get it under control before I'm worrying about their training. But if their actual medical condition is under control, which I've not seen ton, I've, I've seen some other autoimmune conditions that can be exceptionally difficult to control. Psoriatic arthritis, most of the patients that I've seen with it, we can get it under control uh, with, with easily available medicines if you have insurance. Put it that way. <laughs> um, if it's under control and they're still having significant fluctuations, that is a perfect opportunity to introduce autoregulation into somebody's training yeah, I was just, yeah that is the thing to use i've talked about this with patients who have uh hashimoto uh thyroiditis hypothyroidism lupus ra all kinds of other conditions where symptoms are just going to fluctuate that's just the way it is and you can't tell them you're being a pussy because your joints are swollen up you have synovitis and you can't hold on to a bar uh, you need to get your medical condition under control, but this is where autoregulation can benefit you because it facilitates training rather than what? Not training. Yeah, That's the idea. Okay. Yeah. I think,
1: I mean, that's, to, to expand upon that, in nearly any condition, any medical condition, I don't make changes to, the, to my planned programming or programming model that we talked about earlier uh, based on the condition. Uh, outside of what happens after it's implemented in general and then I use auto-regulation every step of the way and even coaches who aren't using RPE sh- are likely, even if they don't admit it also using some sort of auto-regulation because, think about it if your last warm-up if, you know, 100% healthy, looks grindy like you mean that that coach is just going to add weight
0: to the bar because <laughs> that was written on the paper? That is yeah. profoundly stupid and, stupid and is going off-program because that is not the intended stress of the program.
1: Correct. Correct. So so I think that auto-regulation can happen at multiple different levels, but if I had a person whose performance level I expected to wax and wane on a regular basis, like 100% of the world's population, <laughs> then I would probably use a some sort of prescriptive... Uh, uh, Communication that would allow for that, whether that's a percentage range or RPE or feeling scale, feeling scale or, you know, the In My Feelings Challenge. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's multiple ways to do that. But uh, I think, I think that, that that's not unique to any particular condition because, again, even somebody who doesn't have an autoimmune disease or any other medical condition who comes in who's markedly either underperforming or overperforming, you have to make adjustments on the fly based on, if you're a coach, what you're seeing, or if you're the lifter, what's actually happening in real time.
0: Yeah. So. To the extent that you don't do that, you're unlikely to produce significant long-term success. Right. right? You just in- keep insisting that they put the weight that you wrote down on the bar. They're just gonna quit, right? So, so yeah, it's yeah. the only thing you can do.
1: Yeah. Well, all right, so the question is, Doc said my bicep tendon was gonna explode Thoughts. No, uh, and some other sports stuff. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tommy, the Tommy John surgery thing is interesting because that actually improves performance. So there are people obtaining Tommy John procedures prior to actually needing them because it improves how fast they can throw a ball. So that's, you could make the argument that Tommy John surgery is performance-enhancing procedure. Okay, that's, that's a different deal. Uh, all right. The idea that the bench press is uniquely dangerous and deleterious to your biceps tendon health remains to be seen. The injury rate from resistance training is very, very low overall. And most of the injury rates that are reported are, I dropped a dumbbell on my toe, I dropped the weight on my foot, or somebody else dropped the weight on my foot, Please help me. It's not, yeah, I was benching, you know, an intelligent, progressively overloaded program for a long period of time, and all of a sudden my biceps tendon exploded. <coughs> I don't know what happened. It just exploded out of my actual arm. It exploded. It's gone now. All right. So that, that, I think, if a doctor told me that, I'd be like, what? With a U. And then uh, I'd make them explain further just to get some more quotables, you know, because that's, that's <laughs> interesting. As far as what to do about that, I'm not advising you to do anything. I'm saying you're an adult; you can make your own decision. And if your shoulder hurts, that's probably something else, you know, that can be managed. And even if it is a biceps tendinopathy, there are ways to manage that as well. None of them involve stop training.
0: And uh, what kind of doctor is this? This is a private practice. Just general naturopath. Okay, (laughs) and this general practitioner was telling you that because you have a history of shoulder dislocation, that bench pressing now puts your biceps tendon at unique risk.
1: Well, that's also, I mean, that's also.
0: None of that is true. Yeah, So the risk, the the biggest risk for shoulder dislocation is gonna be a history of dislocation. Sure. Okay? Shoulder dislocations, depending on severity, can definitely damage some of the structures around the shoulder. It can result in various tears of rotator cuff tendons or musculature around that area, right? Jordan dislocated his shoulder. We were just talking about this uh, Uh, Thursday, Friday night in 2007. Through motocross stuff? Yeah. yeah, I've had three dislocations on this shoulder. And then uh,
1: when I went to college, I dislocated again on incline dumbbell bench press. Uh, and it was only like 65 or 70 pounds, as I recall. Like, I just brought it down
0: and subluxed, and I was like out, and I was like. Mm. Which was because he had a history of dislocation, right. not because of a dumbbell incline. The mostly in- right. The most interesting thing is
1: that since then, I've never dislocated it. And I've inclined dumbbell bench 120s for. 10 to 12 like so i just don't worry about it because i feel like if it's going to dislocate it's going to dislocate and i didn't do anything to you know yes. make it happen or not you know i have it, this history but what am i going to do not train
0: the worst thing you can do for your shoulder which has a history of dislocation is to not train it that's it yeah your biceps tendon is going to be fine yeah you excuse to do some more curls well, he didn't even say anything about tendinopathy. No, I know. I'm just, just it's listen. Like, it's like he picked a weird tendon Shh, to pick sh- on, you know? Do more curls. <laughs> Do more curls. Yeah.
1: Back there. Always good excuse. So, so the question is about fiber recommendation, how that changes calories. So uh, there is one paper that I'm thinking of that talks about uh, it's either 10 or 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories. All right. So I, I think it's 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories, which would be, which is under the assumption that nobody's eating more than 2,500 calories a day. So max speed 35 grams of fiber a day, because the study that that recommendation was based on suggests that those who eat 35 grams of fiber a day or more have the lowest rates of like colon cancer, obesity, highest lean body mass, stuff like that. So that's the it's correlational data uh, based on. Uh, Uh, large large data sets that being said i think that if i have somebody on that low of carbohydrates my assumption is that um, i'm trying to really calorie restrict them and that it's very hard to go over on calories when uh you're subsisting on mostly fruits and vegetables it for carbohydrates does that make sense that being said if i was if i was 100% 100% confident that person was going to have just 100 grams of carbs a day. I'd be like, "Yo, Rice Krispies, get after it. Don't worry about it." You know, so it just depends. And, and so theoretically, if I had a person who I had on 100 grams of carbohydrates per day with 30 grams of fiber, which is, you know, mostly just fruits and vegetables, if they were just hemorrhaging weight, weight's literally like falling off them, I'm like, look, man, I'm losing so much weight. I don't understand what's happening. One, I'm gonna get them worked up for cancer, and then the second thing I'm gonna have them do is be like, "Hey, maybe." maybe you can increase your carbohydrate intake, right? Because uh, the weight loss is very, very quick, very quick, and if I don't have a reason to have them lose weight that quickly, I, I wouldn't mandate it. Does that make sense? All right. Do you have anything to add to that? No. Austin doesn't care about your nutrition. <laughs> That's the take-home message. The question Not. is about pivot blocks, pivot weeks, resensitization, uh, washout periods. How well validated are they? Uh, they're not, they're not. Next question, I'm, well, just, <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, the only data I can think about are some of the undulating periodization studies where they look at, like, those that will have lower stress weeks with significantly less volume or significantly less intensity or both, but nobody's looking at, all right, these, these people are getting 12 weeks of training and that in one of them, one group, they're getting a pivot week in the middle. So I think that's more of an empirical sort of recommendation just based on uh, how we think training, training works. And also, think about it, think about if you had somebody who was like volume, 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 they stopped working based on any, whatever metric you're tracking, and you are like, okay, uh, we're, no break, no change, no like gradual sort of you know, transition, we're just going right into, you know, this intensification phase where everything's, you know, higher as far as average intensity. Uh, Some people wouldn't tolerate that very well. So the way I actually think about it is that if we know that a rapid increase in stress, a rapid increase in stress uh, increases risk of like pain report, that I'm gradually working them into something that's uniquely stressful compared to what they've been doing. So I like to do that a little slower. Um, one other strategy I use that, that is based on that is adding one set a week. So it's like if I had somebody do a single at eight, five at nine, no back sets. That's week one. Week two, single at eight, five at nine, take some weight off the bar, add another set of five. Do that. Week three, add a set. Week four, add a set. You know, do that for a while. And they're like, oh, wow, that's cool. I'm just adding a set a week. Dope. Uh, at some point that's going to stop working and I am have to transition to something else and then I'll kind of restart that process just again gradually
0: alter the stress. That's that's my line of thinking. Uh, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's unlikely that we will ever get significant data that'll validate the the, the, the idea. But it, And if we do, it will likely be confounded by any psychological effects that such a such a week, training week type might have. And so I just hedge my bets and say, it's probably providing some psychological benefits. And I like psychological benefits. So. I like
1: brain stuff. Yeah. <laughs> question is how to train somebody with carpal tunnel. Uh, no real differences in any training, be- because the definitive management of carpal tunnel is you go through the algorithm. You say, well, you're not saying this. Their doctor is saying this. The hand specialist is saying this. Either, well, first you want to know why do they have carpal tunnel, because it can be due to a number of different things. If it's the most common cause, which is just due to a narrowing of the canal where the median nerve enters the hand, all right? And not due to like amyloid, protein deposition, thyroid, thyroid dialysis, Pregnancy. diabetes, being pregnant. It's not due to any of those things. <laughs> and it's due to the most common cause of carpal tunnel, which is just a narrowing of the canal. Then you start with wrist braces at night. And if that doesn't work, then they might put a steroid injection in there with a little lidocaine. And that may buy them some time or eliminate the whole thing. And if that doesn't work, then they need surgery. And so there's no training thing that you can do to fix that. Well, I don't, oh, Easy. (laughs) I don't know if they should get surgery, but I think if they haven't seen a hand surgeon already, or if they haven't seen their doctor already, to make sure that the rest of the workup has been done, that that needs to be done first. And then from a training management standpoint, you may have a person whose, their grip is suffering, right? So if the general question is, if you have a person who's got a grip problem, what do you do about that? Well, it's a minimal concern in the squat, it's a minimal concern in pressing, where you have that compressive grip, they don't need anything about that. Uh, usually, now different people are different, and they may have symptoms during bench pressing or pressing or whatever. And at that, case, you're going to take that on a case by case basis. My suggestion for pulling exercises would be to wear straps, just universally, you know, because a person like, well, I have carpal tunnel, so I can't, you know, and they say I can't hold on to this because I, it's going to make my carpal tunnel worse. And I think as your their coach. You should say, hey, I'm looking at, I'm trying to help what's best for you. I think you should make sure you see your doctor, get this thing worked up, see whatever the next step is. In the interim, we'll use straps. And if they're, having, if they're saying after a bench press or a press, like, look, my hand, I have these symptoms, it's my carpal tunnel, it is not appropriate to have you evaluate them to make sure that that is a valid concern because you're not going to do anything about it. And I don't mean that you or it has nothing to do with you. It's just we are constrained by our, professional sort of scopes of practice so if you are under the impression that them bench pressing a barbell or pressing a barbell now is unsafe secondary to their grip concerns then you'll have to regress them to something that is more stable might be a machine yeah okay pec-dec. pec deck well if you got to do pec deck fly all day machine press whatever. one should be so lucky you know? <laughs> i've been trying to get back to the pec deck fly for years now
0: But I can do it backwards. Are you done with the first question? Yeah. (laughs) Take the second one. So you said the second one was for a patient with MS, right? So the thing with MS is that it's a very heterogeneous condition. There are different types, relapsing, remitting, primary progressive, secondary progressive MS – which can have different types of treatments. They can, you can be seeing them at different stages in their illness when they might have different degrees of disability. They may be early on, not a lot of disability, maybe they just had some random numbness or weakness or whatever one day and then it went away and they're functioning fairly normally and they're not on a particularly debilitating medication regimen, they can train fine. Or maybe a more disabling type situation where you may have to make some modifications in terms of exercise selection based on their capabilities or what their disability is, if, if present. Uh, definitely most important thing is to make sure they're seeing a neurologist, they're being treated for their condition. There are increasing, increasingly good medications that we have available for it. There's more and more that have probably come out since we've been in medical school even in the past few years. And uh, and so I would ensure that they're following up regularly, be, you know, being treated appropriately for that, uh, taking Well, this is, I guess, for their doctor to tell them to take vitamin D, has some evidence for benefit in the setting of MS. And if you're training them, similar to our psoriatic arthritis question, got to be auto regulated. They're going to have good days. They're going to have bad days. And you have to account for that. Um, So basically account for whatever their disability is, if present, and then auto regulate the rest. That would probably be the, the way I would summarize the answer to that question.
1: Question is, who are the real special populations? Who's the real MVP? Well, it's not women. Women aren't special. Amputees. Yeah, I was going to say that. Amputees. Yeah, people with prosthetics, people... uh, Spinal cord injury. Yes. Uh, Old people are not necessarily... Because there's no definition that adequately fits that. Uh, So not women, not older folks, but prosthetic... People with prostheses, people with amputations, people with neuropathies that limits their sort of motor function in some sort of specific Mm -hmm. way. Spinal cord patients.
0: People who have uh, myopathies. Yeah muscle disorders like you know uh muscular dystrophy stuff like that i would definitely if somebody walked in and said i have muscular dystrophy i'm gonna off the bat so the question that you're asking is when you say what is a special population what you're asking is somebody who walks in and by virtue of that specific feature requires immediate alteration that's why we're saying we don't think that to be the case for just because somebody says i'm female just because somebody says i'm 50 yeah. Right. But if somebody walks in and says, "I don't have a leg," or well, right? they say that you go. What? what if they say that and it's there? <laughs> <laughs> or you say, "Well, or I'm a yeah, pa- or or uh, or I'm a paraplegic, or I'm a spinal cord injured person, or I have my, uh, myopathy, you're or blind, I have, or I have a enlarging AAA, <laughs> which yeah. in which case we send them on their way. Right. Um, so yeah. yeah, those are just off the cuff a few that we can think of. Imperforate anus. No, I always like that one. Yeah. <laughs> that
1: was fun. So, so the question is, what about pregnant women? Question mark. <laughs>
0: What's the deal? <laughs> What's
1: the deal with pregnant women? They got one person inside, of, one person on the outside who's in control. I don't know. Have you ever thought about the penis actually controlling
0: a person? And they're like, hey, go
1: forward. Hey, go backwards. Hey, feed me. Like, <laughs> so the look, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is the, uh, the sort of source to the go-to source for uh pregnancy and and women's health recommendations meaning they publish guidelines on this stuff on a regular basis um like five years ago if you look at exercise recommendations in pregnancy they're gonna say uh do whatever you did before becoming pregnant nothing else take it easy that's it right they didn't make any specific recommendations now they're like hey if you want to work lift weights that's cool but then they're like, but they shouldn't be like heavy weights. Three kilo dumbbells. I think that's what it says. Yeah. And it's like, why make that that's not there's no evidence. Meaning that nobody's saying, hey, you women who are now pregnant, lift weights. You women who are not who are also pregnant, don't lift weights. Let's see who has more miscarriages. Let's say who has Well, yeah, how's that gonna pass an IRB? That's why they don't do it, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, that being said, the, um, the case reports coming out on this stuff is, are also non-existent, right? You're not seeing like women lift woman lifts weights has miscarriage like over and over and over again. So while I can't recommend just universally like, hey, if you're pregnant, you should lift weights. You should do it this way uh, and there's no risk. I can't say that there is, there is a risk either. We don't know. So my best recommendation is that this conversation has to occur between the patient and the doctor. There are known risks to, exorci- uh, to being sedentary, and there are known risks or no benefits to exercising. And that benefit-risk spectrum should be uh, assessed in relation to that specific patient's condition. Uh, my personal bias is that most women would probably be okay to engage in resistance training, even if it's new to them, provided uh, that there are no other medical comorbidities that are also occurring that might increase their risk for whatever reason. And that, there's a bunch of them um, that I'm not qualified to comment on at this time.
0: Yeah,
1: I agree. So there's just, we just don't have and will not have likely a lot of evidence, uh, all, all, you know, and so that's on some, some people would say that's a cop out, but then I would fire right back and say, but. There are a lot of pregnant women who are still doing CrossFit who are resistance training. These people exist. And you would expect that if this was such a huge problem that we should vehemently recommend against it, that there would be all these case reports being published about women, tra- you know, does barbell back squat exercise and then, you know, has massive miscarriage, also dies, also <laughs> kills gym owner. Like, I don't, you know, like you would expect you would expect these things to not only be published but then also to be highly – Uh, prevalent in the in the media just because of the sensationalism and we don't see that and we've been looking I've been looking for them Uh, yep the final thing I'll say on this has to do with fitness related fitness related uh advice targeted towards pregnant women just because someone has become pregnant and has worked out before does not make them a fitness or medical expert. Uh, just because somebody has completed a pseudoscientific healthcare course, i.e. chiropractic school, and has had a child does not make them an expert in either fitness or medicine. Well, therefore, that person making recommendations specifically about management of exercise during pregnancy should be heeded with caution. Notice how cautious we have been about making absolute recommendations for this population. Okay, it'd be, look, we could be up here and say, doesn't matter, squat, deadlift, press, bench, it's fine, doesn't matter. Okay, we could say that, we could make a course, you know, for it and sell it and make a bunch of money because there's a bunch of pregnant women rolling around or saying, Hey, I'd like to lift. Oh, you guys are doctors? Sweet. But we can't do that ethically. So I think that we have to be risk averse and then also consider where some of this advice is coming from. And it's very frustrating to me that people will just overlook that to say, Well, you had a kid, so you know. <laughs> what? How is that possible? Did you deliver them yourself? Like, were you able to manage your entire pregnancy solo? Like Home okay. birth, bro. Yeah, home birth, right, underwater. For sure. Anyway, all right. I'll probably edit that all out. It's, just... it's fine.
0: Well, <laughs> thanks for coming,
1: everybody. <laughs> yeah, really. No, seriously, thank you guys so much for coming. It's great. Thanks. It's great. <laughs>
0: Muchas gracias, amigos. Siempre de fiesta. Thank you very much for watching the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you like it, please hit subscribe.
1: I feel like I need a hug after that, you know. <laughs>
0: I was like tell the roller bros. <clears throat> Bro <laughs> It'll be alright.